Hello and welcome to another edition of Turned Out a Punk. I'm your host, Damien Abraham, and once again, I'm bringing you a conversation with someone who grew up listening to punk, may or may not still be involved in punk, but had their life changed by the genre in a major way. And today on the show, it's World Series Week on Turned Out a Punk. And in celebration of the L.A. Dodgers versus the Tampa Bay Rays, I hope I got that right, I have the only lead singer slash Major League Baseball player and once more a former L.A. Dodger, Scott Radinsky of the band Pulley, of 10-Foot Pole, of the L.A. Dodgers, of the White Sox, of Cleveland, of uh, California Angels coaching, and above all that, of the mighty scared straight more on that in one second but first if you want to get in touch with me head over to the email address turned out a punk podcast at gmail.com that is run by my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire tristan abraham and tristan will get the message to me tristan thank you for everything you do you make dreams come true buddy i love you little brother uh, if you want to get in touch with me more directly, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at left for damien If you're looking for ways to support the show, the best way to support the show is just by telling all your friends about it, letting everyone know that you know that we have this podcast. And some weeks it's it's a punk rock legend. Some weeks it's a, a comedian. Some weeks it's a baseball player who's also a punk rock legend. You know, we go all over the map here. Wrestlers too. There's some wrestlers. I'm going to admit that. Uh, and, uh, you know, to let them know. You can also support the podcast by subscribing to it and rating it on your podcast platform of choice. Or you can go further than that and head over to patreon.com slash turned out a punk and support the show and support the show that way. There's also a Facebook page you can check in on and a Instagram page you can check in on. Both of those are run by Tristan. And speaking of support, this show would not be possible with the kind, loving support of the fine folks at Vans. They came aboard a couple years ago and said, Damien, don't do this out of your own pocket anymore. And they've helped me out covering the costs over here. And I got to see everyone from Vans a couple, well, last week on a call. And oh man, I miss them. I miss my buddies uh, over there at the House of Vans. But we'll be back. We'll be back when this is when this is all settled down. We'll be back rocking. It'll be, oh boy, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. Okay, on today's show. Today on the show, someone I've wanted to have on since the first round of guests that I thought about. Because, you know, I'm not a big sports guy. I'm not going to pretend to be a huge sports fan that knows a ton about it. I like pro wrestling and I, I, I like punk rock and I like cannabis and, and that's really all I know about when it gets down to it. But uh, I do know one thing and that is Scott Radinsky is my favorite baseball player of all time because he's the lead singer in one of the most important punk bands to me personally of all time. Scared Straight, Brian Walsby from Scared Straight has been on the show before and I think I talked to him about it, but Scared Straight was a band that I found really early into the journey into punk rock and finding out that the guys from Tenfold Pole also played in this Nardcore band from Oxnard, California on Mystic Records called Scared Straight sent me down a path that I'm still on with this podcast. So I kind of owe it all to Scared Straight. And add to that the fact that Scott Radinsky is, is like a literal Bo Jackson kind of in the sense that he was the lead singer in a, in a, in a huge punk band, Tenfold Pole and then Pulley but also playing Major League Baseball. So I guess not literally a Bo Jackson because he's not actually playing football, but, you know, he's he's doing two big things at the top level, and that's what we, you know, that's what we qualify as a Bo Jackson on this show over here. So I've always wanted to have him on to talk to him about what it was like just juggling these two 
seemingly disparate worlds. And thankfully, Tristan has finally made it happen. So I did this interview a while back and I, and I, and I finished the interview and I was going to put it up. And then I was like, what are the chances that one of the teams Scott played for? Cause he played for a few teams is going to make it to the world series. And I'll have this episode in my back pocket. So it could have been Chicago. It could have been Cleveland. It could have been, uh, you know, California angels who he did some coaching for. There's a lot of teams. It could have been well, not a lot, but there's a few teams it could have been, but of all the teams, it has to be, the LA Dodgers. And to me, the LA Dodgers are, you know, once again, having said that I'm not a sports fan, the LA Dodgers are kind of a team that I have so much, uh, emotional attachment to because, uh, not only was it the first baseball cap that I ever bought because I didn't want a blue Jay cap because all my friends had it. So I wanted an LA Dodgers cap. So I got my LA Dodgers cap, but also it was the first baseball game that I ever went to. Like before I even went to see the blue Jays play, I got to see the Dodgers play at Dodgers stadium. So I've always had a place in my heart for the LA Dodgers. And so here we are in the world series. And now I have Scott Radinsky, former LA Dodger, uh, and an episode with him. So what better time to put this out? Uh, so I'm, I'm putting my support and turned out a punk support behind the LA Dodgers also because the Tampa Bay Rays, they beat up on my Blue Jays or my, my kids' Blue Jays, I should say. But so, yeah, yeah, no, no, not them. LA Dodgers is that that's who we're backing because not only the emotional stuff that I mentioned, but also Scott Radinsky. And there's also another little tidbit that's revealed in this episode about another former LA Dodger in punk rock. <sighs> that's why we do this thing here, people, to find out these kind of tidbits. Okay. I have rambled on far too long, far more than I like to these days. Also, I should mention that I've been doing these playlists and I've been putting them up on my artist page on Spotify. I know. I wish I could put them up on all the, the streaming services and I'll find a way. I did this a while ago and it was pretty pretty fun. You get a great little mixtape out of it. So, so head over to the Damien Abraham artist page on the aforementioned streaming service there. And once again, apologies to people that use other streaming services. It's just because this is the one that gets bundled in with my cable package and that has an artist page for me where I can add these things. So that's the only reason I'm not picking, I'm not picking a side in this thing. I'm, I'm on the side of physical media and, and, and records, but I guess podcasts, you have to be on the internet. Ah, well, I'm not getting involved in this thing. This is way too much headache already talking about this thing. So just head over to this place if you have this streaming service and listen to the mixtape. And I put up a few in the past few weeks and I, you know, check them out. All right. That's it. Sit back, relax, and enjoy Scott Radinsky on Turned Out a Punk. Go Dodgers. Scott, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh yeah. Thank you. Well, as I was just telling you off air, you're like one of my, my dream people to talk to, not even, you know, even in just in the recent years, but scared straight is like one of my top 10 hardcore bands of all time. Man, you are putting the pressure on. I mean, <laughs> God, all it can go is downhill. <laughs> well, scared straight was the band that like, you know, obviously I was a fan of 10 foot pole and, and, you know, but when I've heard about Scared Straight and then finally tracked down a copy of that seven inch, it was like the quest for me. It was like the first major record quest I went on as a young person. So that record. Oh, yeah, that's cool. Well, you know, times were different, though, right? I mm -hmm. mean, it just it was different then. 
Oh, absolutely. Like now, you now, it, now you would have just pushed a button and you'd have had it instantly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I could have, I could have heard it before I bought it too. For sure. Yeah, exactly. Um, but going back, I guess I got to start this thing off the way they all start off, which is Scott, how did you get into punk? Do you remember the first time you ever came across the genre? Um, there was an, uh, like an abandoned country club, uh, a few blocks from my house and there was a swimming pool that was just kind of there. Mm-hmm. And so the, the street I lived on had a, a few kids and we, uh, we just, we drained it and we started riding our bikes in it and we were kind of learning how to ride our skateboards in it. I was probably in sixth grade at the time, seventh grade. And that's, that's when, uh. So this thing took off within about a year and it was punk rock was thriving. It was somewhere around 80 or 81 at the time, 81 maybe. And, uh, I, I just would go skate at the pool, just this little innocent kid. And then all these people just caught wind of this, this, this pool, this empty pool. And at that time, everybody who was skating, I guess, was a lot of punk rock people. And, and, uh, it was, it was like a miniature festival in my backyard for probably a solid two years before, uh, before the pool shut down, but that's kind of where I first, you know, started seeing all these people coming and playing music and, and it was cool. And, and I, and I, I would kind of hold my own a little bit skating with them. So I would ask questions like, who's that? Who's that? And I learned about it. And these guys were, of course they were in high school. So it seemed like they were, you know, 10, 15 years older mm-hmm. it was probably, probably just a few, but that's pretty much my early recollection of being exposed to it was right in my backyard. So did bands ever uh, like set up and play there too? Two times they did, um, but it was it was like off a dirt road away from the neighborhood. But you know, at night it was pretty loud. I remember yeah. two times people brought generators and, and bands played, but there was music on a you know like ghetto blasters at the time, probably cassette tapes that people were bringing, and it was it was pumping. It was pretty cool. It was a good vibe, man. To to be that age and 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 experience it was pretty cool. The way I did. And what kind of, what were some of the bands that they were playing at the time that you remember? Um, well, it was everything that, that was like mostly LA stuff. I remember that uh, something, someone got their head kicked in a lot of adolescence, um, you know, Black Flag, Fear, The Circle Jerks, all the standard, you know, LA bands that were popular at the time. Um, um, God, MDC, Suicidal. I can remember a lot of different kind of music, Minor Threat. Yeah, you know, the, the, the music of the early 80s. And at, what kind of music were you into prior to that? Um, Always into, like, my first, the first thing I ever got was when I was in first grade, the neighbor across the street had burned me an eight-track tape of Queen, News of the World, and uh, a couple Ted Nugent songs. And then I bought some Kiss records and uh, just kind of went from there. But it was mostly, you know, Sabbath, Kiss, like, like kind of like, rock yeah heavy rock stuff yeah heavy rock stuff had you been to any concerts prior to that sort of summer of going to this abandoned pool um no nothing real no no i definitely hadn't what was the first concert you went to um i saw fear at this place called devonshire downs they played with uh, a band called circle one uh the vandals i think a band called anti and then, and the, oh, that band's amazing. Yeah, and the, and my second gig was Minor Threat uh, at this place called Roller Works, like an old skating rink in the you know out here, and and that was insane. Suicidal, America's Hardcore. That was that was good stuff. And from then it was just 
I started getting flyers every, you know, every time I'd go to a gig, I was like, Hey, we got something to go to in two weeks. And that's kind of what it was. And those early shows that you're describing, like Circle One specifically, and, and you know, obviously that Minor Threat show is very storied, but a lot of things you hear about is how crazy those shows were and how violent those shows were. Did you kind of pick up on that right off the bat? I, I was, to be honest, I can remember being scared to death. The first, the first, uh, the first gig I went to, it was just very intimidating to be, to be young. I was probably in ninth grade. I don't know what year it was, but it was early 80s and and um, yeah, everybody that was, you know, a, a senior or already out of school, they were old. They were people that could drink and mm. there was a lot of violence in, in, uh, in LA and just the whole way they danced and everything. But I, I definitely stood off to the, to the side and just kind of watched and took it all in. And it was, it was, uh, the energy was just blew me away. I was hooked instantly. And also, I guess that's the time period where you do have that shift happening in L.A. where, like, as you said, like the adolescence and kind of like the arrival of like the hardcore scene and that first wave of L.A. kind of punk being, you know, assumed by it. A lot of shaved heads, man. A lot of shaved heads and a lot of boots. Yeah. So was it like uh, popular in your high school? Was like a lot of were a lot of kids into it or is it just like a, a subsect of kids that were into it? Uh, yeah, I'd say in high school there might have been maybe 20 of us. That that'd probably be at its biggest peak. Where in my three years of high school, there might have been you know twenty that kind of hung out at lunch, like the, you know, the weird people, you know. <laughs> yeah. And where did you kind of like gravitate to after these first two shows? Like, did you start playing music, or were you already playing music at this point? Um, well, we we I had been playing music, and um, I played drums and jammed with a couple of guys. And when I started hearing some of the music that was going on at the pool. Um, I started turning them on to some of those bands and we started playing a lot of covers. Like we just started jamming, you know, like playing circle jerk songs and fear songs and, you know, like all the bands I was, you know, using examples. Um, and our whole set, we had two original songs and the rest of the set we did was, you know, consisted of, like I said, everything from GBH to fear to, you know, minor threat to whatever. And, and, um, we were just learning about it and we'd hear a new band and we'd want to play their song and you know, bloodstains by, you know, agent orange. And, and, um, that's what we did. And we just basically jammed. And, um, yeah. And once, 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 uh, we started going to gigs, I think we started making a conscious effort of, of writing our own songs because we wanted to, you know, God, we want to be a band too. And we didn't want to play cover songs. That was kind of our introduction to getting into it. And was that scare straight? Uh, it was actually called SOF at the time. SOF. Yeah. What did that stand for? Um, we didn't know. Skaters <laughs> on fire. Salsa, you know, like uh, someone said, uh, soldiers of fortune. I don't know. It wasn't, we didn't really have it. It was just the three letters. That's kind of what it was. Did you guys record it all? Um, if we did, it would have been like in a living room on a, an eight track or something. Uh, mm. Cause I can remember our guitar player being, having access to stuff like that. And, yeah, but not really. No, I don't think we did record. And so how long after that did you kind of get introduced to the, to the like mystic stuff and like all this sort of new crop of bands that were kind of coming up like next well, wave, I guess. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, the SOF thing lasted through ninth grade. I think by the time we got into the summer before 10th grade, it turned into scared straight. And, um, from that point on, it was, uh, we were, we were, we were part of the scene. We were playing gigs and, and, Tony from Mill Repute 
a guitar player of the repute was putting together a compilation called Nardcore. And, um, you know, we, we knew him, we'd, we'd seen him at gigs and at some of the, you know, maybe like parties or something where bands would be playing locally. And, um, he asked us if we wanted to be on the record and told us about it and we could put a couple songs and if we wanted to, we could go down and record. I think it was either the next night or a couple nights later. So we, uh, we did it and that was kind of how we got introduced to mystic. We just went down there and recorded. It's such an amazing, uh, label. Like it's always fascinated me. Cause it's just like, here's this British guy with this board that, you know, purported to be the Led Zeppelin board that just shows up and ends up recording like all the hardcore bands for a while. Well, he had them all basically knocking on his door and, and, you know, I mean, there was no labels back then. I mean, there, there really wasn't. And, and, and so he, uh, he, he, he kind of got a, a rap for the recording sound of, you know, a lot of the stuff was just kind of, you'd, you'd get an hour to go, go record for a song for a compilation. So you'd carry your stuff up the stairs, set up, they'd mic it. You'd have an hour to do a complete song. And most of it was live. And then the singer would sing, you know, the vocals after and they would mix it all in an hour. And it, a lot of the stuff was just overly mass produced and kind of sounded like shit. But, but as far as the bands, I mean, you know, the youth brigade, went in to go to go record there at uh, Sync with California record uh, originally. And I don't think they liked the way the sound turned out, but that's that was kind of when all the bands just started, you know, I think Doug got introduced to that and said, Jesus, man, this is a whole up and coming market. And the happening club ironically happened to be literally a hundred feet away, the Cafe de Grand from where his studio was. So he had every band, you know, from, you know, minor threat to raw power to you name it, played this club a hundred feet away from the studio. So it was kind of easy to go send the, you know, the sound engineer would, you know, at, at the club would, would, would run the studio at, you know, half the time at, 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 you know, he'd run the board at the studio, he'd be the engineer. So it was all kind of like a the right place, the right time kind of thing. I mean, when you think about it, a lot of killer historic bands recorded there, whether it sounded like shit or not, there's a lot of bands that were on that label and hats off to Doug. Oh, absolutely. And you go through it, like you're saying, like, you know, be it yourselves or be it no effects or even the mentors or Vox pop or Hey, Hey taxi, the pre Minutemen band. Like he just was really giving a lot of people that would have huge impacts in this music, kind of their, their gateway to the industry. Oh, for sure. I mean, if it, it, I, I mentioned to someone the other day, um, you know, when like when when we finally got on that compilation and the record went out, it was like all of a sudden we started getting letters from New Jersey and from kids in Pennsylvania, and it was fuck, this is pretty cool, mm-hmm. you know. And, and it made you made you realize like it was we were part of something that was at the time was pretty cool. And, and you know, he kickstarted a ton of bands. I, I thought it was really cool towards the end of the studio when it was dying. I, I actually helped me and a, a guy who used to live in North Carolina with Brian. Walsby, um, we helped move the whole studio down to a storage unit in San Diego. And one of the last things I remember them doing was government issue. I thought, well, this is pretty cool, man. I mean, this, this is a legendary band that's coming out here to record on Mystic. And at this point, it was like 85 or 86. So that, that was, I, I mean, I, the beginning and the end, it was like there was a lot of good in between. Oh yeah. And I can only imagine the tapes that you were moving and like all the stuff that didn't come out. That's just sitting there for sure. Um, it's also funny. Cause you look at the party animal comp, which you guys are on as well. It's like a who's who of American hardcore, like from, from all across the country. Like you got bands from, from all over the place on that thing. 
Um, and it's like really representative of, of like this whole wave of incredible stuff that was coming out around that time. Yeah. Mystic records, man. I mean, like I said, you love them or hate them. And, and uh, <laughs> <clears throat> I mean, me personally, I, what could I say, man? I was a kid and given the opportunity to record and nobody else was given, you know, given us that and they were putting out records. It was, you didn't think too much about it back then. There was no, uh, production. It was just getting it out there. When, when Eric from no effects was on the show, he talked about how there was like almost a second scene or like a new scene that sprung up and no effects and yourselves and, and justice league and America's hardcore. were all kind of part of this, this like newer scene. Did you guys feel that that was the same thing or did you feel that? Yeah. Right? Oh, for sure. Like around 83, like I said, the, you know, the, there was the, there was the first wave of stuff, you know, the LA stuff, the gears, the germs, you know, that early, you know, bag, all that stuff. And then, and then it was, you know, then it was like black flag, uh, the minute man, um, you know, all the SST type bands and, and uh, early hardcore bands. And then 83, 84, it kind of got into like suburbia. And that's where I think a lot of the bands like ourselves, you know, and like out in Oxnard, a lot of those type of bands, that was definitely, I don't know if that was the second wave or the third wave, but it was definitely another, you could feel like when we became scared straight, you just knew that around that time, like I knew Ill Repute and Dr. No and RKL and all these other bands in my neighborhood were good. And it was like, wow, this is a little different than, I mean, I don't compare to the descendants because of course they sounded good from the beginning, but it was just another, it was another step. And it was like, it was definitely new for sure. Yeah. Third wave, whatever it was. Yeah. No. And it feels like it's funny because out of, all the bands like, you know, your 10 foot pole scared straight and like no effects would be the two bands that kind of survive from that scene to the next scene, the, the next boom that kind of happens in that area. And, 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 you know, like epitaph happened to be that next wave of, of, you know, just a label that was putting out quality stuff. And then it went to another level. And of course, once, you know, once the, the the radio started playing some of those bands, it just the 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 label, the value of you know people were just buying stuff just because they were on the label. You know they didn't even know they had never heard of Pulley or Ten Foot Pole, but you know they would buy a record just because you know they liked the Offspring or they liked Rancid, and and you know that's that kind of helps win some fans as I think well. Also, it just felt like even before those bands hit, like there was just such a, a like a groundswell around like you know well. 10 foot pole, obviously no effects, Pennywise. Like there was just like, like skateboard culture was so massive at that point. And it was, it, it was, yeah, it was, those, it was these Taylor Steele surf videos and like, and then all the snowboard stuff. And next thing you know, it was like the, you know, the, the PlayStation games. And, and that's kind of when it got into that surf skate culture type thing because of those, the songs and the videos. And uh, that, that just totally propelled the label. And, and, and a lot of those bands to a, to a complete another level. I guess going back, you know, before that, um, when it's still scared straight, um, eventually this scene that you're kind of a part of seems like it kind of dies off and you're like one of the few bands that are left standing. Um, well, I don't know if scared straight was one of the last bands left standing. Um, I just think we changed the name and moved on and evolved with the direction of where the music was headed. And, um, you know, that, that, 
that hardcore sound, it just started dying. There was no more do-it-yourself shows anymore. Every Legion Hall and Vets Hall had been worn out. Every community center, anything that had ever had a punk gig for five or six years pretty much went away. And there was a couple of mainstay clubs, but for the most part, you know, punk gigs moved around in, in LA. They moved around all over the place. And they were there was never a, a you know a constant venue, so I mean that 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 scene kind of the violent part of it through through 80, 80 81, 82, 83-ish around that area, I mean it just kind of wore its welcome out with a lot of places and and um, so then that next level that came it, it 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 was it was like more of like the club type thing. There was now it was like wow bands are going to really play the Roxy. Or, or the key club, or some more established clubs. And when that music became accepted, it made it more accessible. But I don't, I don't know if it was last, last, last band standing as much as just, you know, more of a realization. It's like, well, all right, maybe it's time to turn the page, change the name, and, and uh, well, we can write this kind of music too. And we were, we were kind of evolving with the direction mm-hmm. it was going. But like, you know, in like 1988, when you put out that LP, like the first LP, You Drink, You Drive, You Die, like, where would you guys have been playing? Would you have been playing with, like, bands like Uniform Choice at that point? Or or is there, like, a different scene that you kind of fit into? Well, that record was recorded in 86. And, and did it the, come out till 88? Yeah, and the, studio, <laughs> and, the, and the studio moved. And so then two years later, I had a buddy come up from a record store with a cassette tape and go, hey, check this out. And I went, what? And it just came out. And, and um, so, yeah, that, I mean, at that point, by 88, it was already kind of, eh, it was kind of like, making a sour turn people were getting into like weird kind of rock stuff and more like metal like that crossover that's kind of the direction a lot of punk bands went and and um that that definitely was never really like our scene so we we kind of kind of felt our way through playing a lot of the older songs for a while got on some local shows you know a handful here and there and then uh once once things kind of started going in a different direction changed the name just jumped on that wagon so, like, you guys consistently play. Like, were you still playing shows in in '88 when the LP kind of made its way to you? I guess. Oh yeah, we we've 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 been an active band, uh, or I should say, been a part of you know different concepts of it have been active going on since '83. I don't think there's ever been a calendar year where there hasn't been you know some sort of you know playing live, um, and and you know not necessarily writing or. You know, I, I can remember one year, I think we played one gig, but, you know, then some years we played 20 and another year we'd go on tour for, you know, three, three months out of the year. Um, and then another year we might play 12 gigs. It just, it just kind of, they definitely, it definitely has been going on pretty regular since I, I'd say probably like 83, 84. And I guess like the other, you know, your other side of your life that you're kind of engaged in at the same time as your, your major league baseball career or your baseball career period. Um, starting out, like, what was it like juggling a band and that? Cause I've got a son who's, you know, in not competitive baseball by any stretch, but he's 11 years old and, and really pursuing it seriously. And he does it every single night. Like, how did you find time to kind of fit these two time sucks into your life? Um, well, the band was, you know, baseball was going on since I was a little kid, and the band started somewhere around ninth grade, learning how to play, you know, with other people. Um, so those were like the only two things I did. I don't think baseball 
1984 and five when I really got serious with it in 86, it what definitely was not as demanding as what you would see in a 11, 12 year old travel league. Now, you know, they're, it's a lot more serious. Um, that my commitment was, you know, we, my, my baseball class was six period and we stayed an extra hour. I was home by four, you know, a lot of times we'd have band practice at, you know, four thirty or five, we'd rehearse for an hour, dinner, everybody do their homework. And, you know, that, that's kind of how it went in high school. Um, when I got to, uh, do it as a career, it, it, you know, it was more like, well, we got, I got four months off, so we're going to do some stuff. And, and there was years where guys were going to school and things were a little tougher. We'd get another guy to replace them for a couple of shows or whatever. Um, but we always kind of had that calendar of time and, and I guess, you know, being a part of, uh, of a passion and a part of something that has always been a part of my life, it, it wasn't so much like juggling time. It was just, that's how I filled time. Um, because I, I would, I always have a guitar with me, whether I'm in a hotel room or, you know, an apartment somewhere on the road. And then, you know, when, when I'm home, we would rehearse a couple times a week and we'd start booking gigs and, and, and we'd be, be part of it. Um, so that's, it's been easy because it's the only thing I do. <laughs> I guess it's like something that when you're doing it, it doesn't seem any different. It's just something from the outside when, you know, you're just someone like myself who doesn't do anything. It just seems like a lot to kind of manage. Yeah. I mean, I guess when you're, when you're doing baseball professionally, eight months, it's, it's a grind. And, um, and then I'd come home and, and it wasn't until, wasn't until probably the early nineties when we started like actually being in a position even to like accept tours and, and, and it would be worth going on a tour. Um, so when we got on, Definitely when we, by the mid nineties, when, when the epitaph thing started going, probably at the change, at the name change, a 10 foot pole, that's when we, we started saying, okay, let's make a commitment to tour a month out of the year. Maybe it's two weeks in Europe and two weeks in Canada or, you know, two weeks or a week in Japan, or a week in Australia and, and then two weeks in the States. And, and we, we kind of had to be selective and, and, and not really hand pick, but just we, we could only do what we could do. And, um, We've been able to, since that point, we've been able to, uh, we've been able to pretty much do that every year. It's not like, you know, I'd go to baseball for eight months, come home and tour for four months. It, it wasn't really that demanding. I, I have a, uh, you know, a family and a, a life and, you know, playing live is part of it. And once in a while we'd rehearse and write and I don't know, just you do something. I'm sure you do something. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I wonder if I do. I got, I got the kids. That's what I'm doing. And a podcast, yeah. but really compared to like, you know, professional I just, baseball. I think it just sounds like a lot, you know? Yeah. Like I said, the, the eight months, it's kind of this thing where like for eight months, you put on those horse blinders and you're just totally focused on, you don't even look at the calendar. You just put your head down and you run as fast as you can to the finish line. And next thing you know, you look up and it's October and it's over. And then you get four months off. And, and that is so much time to just kind of, unwind and by the time february rolls around you're kind of itching to get back to the competitiveness of you know going to be a part of a team part of the season and it's just i i grew to understand that lifestyle and, and it's just it's you know not, I, I don't mean to downplay it but it's been it's it's a grind but it's been it's been very manageable mm -hmm. you know it's interesting because there's i've had a lot of professional wrestlers on and they all talk oh, about cool. a, they all talk about a certain point when they had to kind of give up punk rock 
because wrestling was, you know, happening at the same time that they'd be going to a show, right? Like, so Friday night at eight o'clock, they'd be wrestling instead of, you know, at a gig. And it seems like with that off season, you're kind of, you are, you're, you are able to, to have both. On the off season, you're able to have both. During the season, I would get one of the, you know, the LA weekly type papers in every city I'd go to. And the first thing I'd do is look to see if there was any gigs. And I can remember tons of times sitting in a stadium in Minnesota and I write two blocks away from the stadium, this club called first Avenue is, you know, having a gig. And I'm like, fuck, I want to get there. You know, I'm looking at the scoreboard. I'm looking at the clock. I'm like, okay, I can go take a shower, walk across the street. And, you know, I can see 15 minutes. Um, but yeah, it's like, that's, it's kind of like what that, you know, the, that, that, um, that endless summer movie where they're just constantly chasing summer. It's like, it's kind of like been like that with music for the last 35 years. So you would go to shows after like playing? Uh, I've gone to shows after I can remember being in Philadelphia when uh, a lot of my friends were on the warp tour and, and uh, going and hanging out till about two o'clock, three o'clock till I had to go across the street for about three hours. I saw a bunch of bands play. And then, uh, and then as I was sitting in the bullpen at, at veteran stadium, I, and the entire black, you know, all the bad religion guys are there and a couple guys from Pennywise and you know, a lot of my friends that just, they're done playing for the day. Their, their, their gig was across the street and now they're walking over to taking a baseball game and see the Dodgers play. And so that there was a lot of that, you know, as much as I could ever make happen. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a lot you know? of, a lot of fans like, you know, we, the Melvins obviously are huge, huge fans of baseball. Like there's a, a lot of punk people and punk bands that are massive baseball fans. I find it, it's, it's a trip because it didn't used to be that way. And when, when I don't know too many other guys that were, you know, in my position. And I always felt like the outcast of like, I, I wasn't a jock. I was never a jock, but like, you know, in that scene it, in, until a certain time, maybe people got older. I don't know, but it was unavoidable. Number one, once the internet popped and people just were able to find things out. And then I just think like people got more accepted and realized like, yeah, it's okay to like baseball or it's okay to like sports. And now all these punk rock people, um, I know I ramble a lot, but there's this movie, this documentary coming out. I don't know if you've seen it. Baseball Furies, I think it is. No. Oh, well, check the trailer out. It's pretty cool because it's got, it's called Baseball Furies. And it's a, a, it's a dude out of somewhere. I want to say Chicago. And um, everybody he talks to, it's like, you know, the guy from uh, Mike Patton, um, you know, the Melvins, a lot all these punk rock people. And all they're talking about is baseball. It's a, cool it's going to be a cool thing i've only seen the trailer but it's going to be a cool cool documentary when it's done you've got to be in it right you're in it right uh, i i talked to him yeah so I, 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 I that's why i checked it out yeah i'm like if you're not in this thing if you just had to watch the trailer i'm like there's definitely a massive oversight going on i just i haven't met a big league guy yet that was in a punk band so i mean as far as i know it's like if you're going to talk about baseball <laughs> I, fair enough right yeah exactly well i was going to ask you like does it is it like that on the other side? Like, were there any other baseball players that you came across that either knew, you know, who you were or just knew about punk in general? One. Only um, one. Only one in my, well, one during my playing career. Mm-hmm. And once I became a coach and I started dealing with uh, this generation of like, let's say a 22 year old kid, you know, in like uh, early two thousands, um, they would look at me and go, Hey, 
you're in that band on Epitaph. Like they kind of, they kind of, that they kind of knew. Yeah. And plus, like I said, the internet kind of ruined everything. <laughs> but, um, um, I mean, I say that jokingly, but, um, I met one guy when I got with the Dodgers in 1996 and he, he grew up in Long Beach and his name was Dave Hansen. I think he held the pinch hitter record for a long time. And, uh, he said he knew that I was in a band or he heard that I was in a band. So this was 96 spring training. And I told him, yeah, he's like, what do you guys sound like? And I started, you know, give him some explanations. And he starts asking me questions like, well, do you sound like TSOL? Um, you know, I was like, what? <laughs> and he knew, he knew these bands. So uh, we kind of hit it off and he's been to a ton of gigs and he plays guitar. And um, he was just a regular dude. Um, not every major league baseball player is like that, but, but uh, me and this guy, clicked it off pretty good and, and and music was the reason there's probably a chance you guys would have been even at some of the same shows i guess right um there's a good chance um we've been to a lot of the same shows that i know he's come to you know hang out with me when we've been playing or, or whatever um but uh there's a chance back in you know yeah, back, back in when we were both back back in high school that yeah that we were, we were both at the olympic auditorium when you know exploited was playing or something yeah, no, definitely. If, like you mentioned, like, you know, the internet ruined everything, but did you kind of look at it as having like a double life? The fact that you were like, you know, like doing it in both worlds at the same time, but yet they're completely separate. I I didn't realize maybe like how other people would view it. So, um, you know, for me, I played baseball and, and I just kind of like when I was playing baseball, I didn't like talking to the sports guy about my rock band. Cause they just did, they didn't understand. And, and, um, and I didn't, I just definitely didn't want to ruin it for the other guys, the credibility or the respect of the music, you know, by having this, like, I didn't want it to have, you know, to, to be known as, Oh yeah, there's this, this jock in the band, this, this sports guy or however they wanted to. Cause back then, like I said, it was kind of almost looked down upon. It wasn't accepted. So some people thought it was cool, but you know, I think in the big picture, it was like people, just kind of resented that they didn't want to allow it into their, you know, their, their, their special scene that, you know, I, I grew up with, but it was hard to, it was hard. It was hard for me, I think, to, to accept both worlds that they were part of it when I was in either one of them. I didn't want to accept, I didn't want to like uh, admit to the other, the other half. It's like, well, when that season starts, it's band season. We can talk about music when it's baseball season. We'll talk about baseball. And that's kind of how I, I guess I just, yeah, it took a while for the, for the guard to come down. Mm-hmm. I could totally, I could totally understand that too, because it's just, uh, there, there are such different worlds, especially at the time you're talking about. Right. Um, were like, were there other kids when you were kind of coming up through, you know, high school baseball into like, you know, uh, semi-pro type stuff before moving on? Like, were there people you were meeting at that point that were like in the music scene or, or like part of the music scene, especially in high school that were also in baseball? None, none, none. Um, nobody, I mean, there was some guys in my baseball team. There was one guy had this older brother who was like total stoner. And (laughs) this guy was like Leonard Skinner, you know, he's like, check out this solo man. And, um, uh, I, you know, like everybody else was, you know, the flipped up half collar alligator shirt with some kind of, you know, rolled up pant leg or something. And and it was just different. You know, I wasn't my, they were hanging out in a different area of school and, I can remember my coach one day because we had to wear our jerseys at high school. We had to wear our jerseys on game day. 
And I remember my coach walking down the quad and he comes down to this area where there's, you know, you start to see packets of ketchup splatter on the wall and taco sauce. And he walks down and he's kind of looking at me and he's looking around at the 15, 20 people that are, you know, obviously standouts at the school. And uh, we, we kind of occupied a little area during lunch down by this, by this gym. And um, he kind of looked around. He's like, man, he's like, you can't find any better friends. <laughs> and I just, and I just kind of laughed, you know, like, well, I don't want to, I don't, I hope I'm not disrespecting your baseball team, you know, flying your flag right now, hanging out down here. But yeah, these are, uh, this is where I hang out. And uh, you know what? I've been able to live my life and, and, and be the person I want to be because in, in, especially in the baseball world, I just did my job. And if you do your job and keep your mouth shut and don't rock the boat and, and just be professional, then no one cares what you do. As long as you're not getting arrested and doing stupid shit, which I never did, um, you can be whoever you want to be. And uh, that's, that's the one thing I can say that I, I wasn't sure about when I first started in baseball. But one thing I learned was, and, and you know, maybe that's that's what kind of helped me realize in the music scene, you know what? Why should I be ashamed I play baseball? I'm not ashamed I play baseball. Yeah, I'm stoked that's what I do. And if people didn't like it, and maybe that's where it got to the point where I was willing to accept it. I don't, I don't know when you know when it happened, but I know for me in baseball, I realized that they allowed me to be who I wanted to be as long as I just got the job done. And, and, uh, and that's kind of how I went about it. Well, I guess it's like, obviously it's a, a, a team sport, but it's also such an individual sport in that team setting that I guess you can kind of still be your whole, like own person without getting like assumed into a group mind think. Well, I think there's this big facade, you know, that like a team, there's 25 individuals. Um, every single guy's there to do a job. They all prepare differently. They all go there with, you know, how, what are they going to do? And yeah, in a sense to like pull on the same side of the rope and help the team on that given day. But, but, um, you're there taking care of your own backyard and, and, you know, in the minor leagues, when you're hanging out with guys and you got roommates and you're riding on the bus all hours of the night and you're sitting next to a guy on a bus driving through North Carolina or wherever it is. It, there's a lot of camaraderie that gets built up, but when, when it gets to a certain level it, and it becomes a job, it's all about business and people go there and, you know, they do their, they do, they do their own thing. You know, once you're done, you walk out the door and like you get in your car and you go your way and every 25 guy kind of does his thing. Now from seven to 10, when the game starts, you're on a team 100%. And, 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 and the good ones, they, they figure it out pretty quick well it's you know it's funny because you said like you know you, we keep ta- coming back to the fact that like you know jocks have this bad rap and this idea that like you know and i think it's because you know you've got a much cooler mentality than a lot of these people that just think because they're on that team that it becomes something that has to become like a mentality where it's like yeah can't can't you just play it and and just be a normal person outside of it where you know, like, that's why I think, you know, and I knew this before, like talking to Brian over the years and talking to other people about you, you just always seem like the coolest dude because you could do this shit on the highest level possible, but still were like a down ass hardcore kid. Well, I mean, it's a game. And I think that's what a lot of people lose sight of is it's a simple game and it's meant to be simple. Is it at a high level? Of course it is. Um, but it doesn't define who you are as a person. And a lot of guys, I mean, and I've been fortunate. I, I've been around the major league level of baseball for, 
you know, close to 30 some odd years in professional baseball. And um, I've seen a lot of guys get to the big leagues and two weeks later think they had to be a big leaguer and there have been triple A the rest of their, the rest of their career. Um, you have to, there has, your feet have to, it's, it's humbled or about to be humbled. And if you don't get that and you're trying to like be somebody you're not, and it, it has to be this thing that you're, you're building it up in your own mind. It's above the shoulders. That's the separator because everybody from the shoulders down throws 95 with a slider or has power or runs fast. And, but it's the guy from the shoulders up that it's the separator of who, who's figured it out. Like, well, I'm going to just be regular dude and, and, and do my thing and not take this too seriously. And you know what? When I look up, wow, 30 years is going to pass. So that's the way I, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, that's the way I, that's, 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 that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, going back, you know, obviously completely shifting gears, going back to Scared Straight with the name and the song Drug Free and even the name of the LP, like, was it a straight edge band or, or is that just like, was it a band that just did not want to, you know, get caught up in the dumb shit? Oh, definitely didn't want to get caught up in the dumb shit. Um, we, we definitely, uh, I, I wouldn't say that, you know, for me to be a straight edge band, does every member have to be, you know, a guy who didn't drink or smoke? Cause I'd never been in a band where every guy didn't drink or smoke. Um, but I was, you know, I was totally influenced by minor threat as a kid and I was in ninth grade and, I saw them live and, and I just fell in love with the whole thing. And I don't know if it was just trying to copycat or whatever, but, um, wasn't trying to be Ian, but certainly was put, put, had him on like a pedestal that, you know, thought, thought almost like he was a God and, um, you know, their whole mentality. And, and it's just, it was what was so into me at the time that, uh, um, you know, sometimes words came out like that. And, and it, it's, I, I personally, I, I, I didn't drink and I didn't smoke. Was I straight edge? I, I don't know. But um, yeah, I mean, it was kind of, kind of stay away from the dumb shit. And yeah, we're kind of more positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cause there is like a rising kind of straight edge scene around that same time. Right. In, in LA, like certainly justice league going on chain of strength and uniform choice for sure. and unity and all those. For movies. sure. Oh Yeah. Yeah, so it was definitely a you know not not like a I want to say we were trying to fit in with the Joneses, but it was definitely like there was a scene for it. And like I said, we always kind of kind of stayed in tune with what was going on at our age, and it seemed like a lot of the bands that we'd start playing with the shows, it's like oh you're into that or Ignite or whatever, and it was like it just kind of yeah. Going um jumping ahead a little bit when Ten Foot Pole starts playing and 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 you know things start blowing up was there a moment when you're like oh things have changed like this is this is actually really happening for this scene? Yes, um, there was definitely a moment at the Hollywood Palladium when Epitaph did this thing called the Summer Nationals, and the Offspring headlined one of the nights. I think Bad Religion and Rancid headlined a night. I can't remember who headlined the other night and each night. So there was bad. We played, we played with SNFU. Uh, we played with the offspring and it was three nights and they sold out every night. And so it's like 10,000 people going through the door over the course of three nights. And, and I realized like, wow, man. And they were into every band. It wasn't like they were just there to, you know, sing, keep it separated. Um, it was, it was, they were into every band and it, you could tell like there's a new scene just totally going off right now. And we're a part of it. And it was the first time, you know, first time we were there at, at the, at the, at the starting point. And it was, it was cool. 
And was it like a whole new crop of people or do you see older people coming back at this point? Or is it like all just younger kids? There was a, there was a ton of like younger kids, or I'd say, you know, it was like between 15 to 25. And then, you know, there wasn't really like the old school guy that, uh, you know, that might've listened to like, let's say poison idea. Yeah. Yeah. Um, didn't, uh, didn't come to a, you know, a, a face-to-face Pennywise show. But then Poison Idea did wind up on Epitaph eventually. Well, you know, what comes around goes around. <laughs> Everyone's got to get on that thing eventually, right? Yeah. Uh, Scott, this has been amazing. And at some point, would you come back for a part two? I'll come back for whatever you need. I'd love to. Sorry I rambled, ramble so much, man. Dude, that's without rambling, this show would be not much of a podcast, <laughs> I, I assure you. And if no one rambles really like I do on this thing, unfortunately, um, which is probably a better thing because I think we'd have six-hour episodes. But before I let you go, were there any bands early on that you kind of think back that like should have gotten more attention? Because as you said, that like Mystic Records was, was churning out bands at such a rate. Are there any bands that you kind of look back fondly on and, and – never really kind of got out there in the way they should have? Well, I mean, I think RKL is probably one of the best bands that ever, you know, ever played in that era. I mean, musicianship wise, just songwriting wise, they just kicked ass. And if you listen to like some, some RKL, uh, it, you're going to think like, well, I gotta, I gotta go back and listen to some bands of, of, at, at that time, at that, you know, those same years and who was playing like that? Nobody was. I mean, they, those guys ripped. Um, and I, I guess they kind of got popular to an extent, but you know, it's not like they were like the, you know, the bad brains are still selling patches somewhere in, you know, today in a, in a punk rock store. But, um, I always thought that they were, they were pretty damn legit, man. When you watch them play live, their drummer, they were smoking. They played so tight and they were really, really good. It seems like, by the time that they could have maybe capitalized on, on like this thing kind of coming back that they were just too fucked up from the stories that I kind of hear. Oh, for sure. And it, it was burnt out by then. They had already gone through some different members and it just got to a point where it just, it burned out and their, you know, their timing wasn't right. Um, you know, and, and you have to be, that's kind of the way it is. The, the luck of the, you know, the luck of the job being around at the right place, at the right time. And, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it totally holds true. I mean, they were ahead of their time and, you know, they ripped, but I, it, it burnt out. It definitely burnt out. And I don't know how fucked up they were, but it, it, you know, I think fat Mike, one of the more infamous quotes on this podcast was when he described them as the only band in history with a pimp and a prostitute in it at the same time. Yeah. And, and a, you know, couple junkies, but yeah. <laughs> You know, I mean, it was they're a fucked up band. Yeah, it, it's just and like you're saying, it's like the bands that are almost like the bands that kind of you know define that sound don't always get to capitalize on it when it finally hits. Yeah, I mean, Fishbone should have. Yeah. I mean, they got they got big, but they were the Chili Peppers. Yeah, and yep. and, and you know the, the Chili Peppers sure took that one, <laughs> but whatever. I mean. Yeah, no, it's, 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 but but that's one band that I think like everyone that kind of from the, you know, your era that saw them just keep coming back to as being the band from that era, like Bomber on drums, just killing it. Oh yeah. Yeah. They were, like I said, they were, they're above everybody else at that point. They were by far, maybe they didn't have the, the, you know, the most catchiest songs or or, or, they were pretty intricate. And when you watched them play live, they, 
they pulled it off. That's the thing is they were, they pulled it off. They had two guitars just shredding a bass player that ripped and an insane drummer and a crazy ass singer who kind of was a little bit like Darby Crash, you know, kind of kicking his legs up all over the stage and just kind of going for it. And they were aggro. They were, they are the kind of band that like, if I wasn't a big snowboarder guy, but like someone would get to the top of a lift put in their headphones and bomb it down a hill to some RKO. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that's really the sound they defined, right? Like they kind of, you know, kind of like made that sound that a lot of bands that did make snowboard videos would kind of follow suit with. That's good to know that there's some other people from the area here that feel the same way. Cause like I said, they, you know, you don't know who got their due back then. And, you know, everybody kind of knew who, who you were, but you know, they weren't, they didn't, they weren't the circle jerks. They weren't, you know, the, the next level band. Mm -hmm. And like Josh Brolin played drums in the pre RKL band too, right? That I don't know. That's, that's some, uh, like sort of legendary internet fact that circulated around, but I got a friend to ask Josh Brolin about it one time on a press junket. And, uh, he, he begrudgingly, not even begrudgingly, but did admit that he did play drums in some pre RKL early incarnation. So we've got Oscar winners and, and, sex workers and and everyone tied in like that's the band that should have a biopic like why is there a queen movie there needs to be a God, movie that, that. yeah that's a, that is a movie yeah they're better than that motley crew dirt yeah exactly. yeah for sure oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, well scott anytime you want to come back on this show please know the door is always open love it man just let me know i enjoyed it Thank you, Scott, for coming on the show. And you heard right there, Scott, we'll be back for a part two in the near future. Because, um, you know, we got to find out what his, his thoughts on the past season were. You know, we got to do, do a whole baseball. Maybe I'll make Turn It a Punk all sports. Turn It a Jock. And that's what we're going to be doing from now on. Just talking sports. Sports, 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 sports. Speaking of sports, next week on this show, we're keeping up with the sport that I have of tracking down all the members of Scared Straight. Next episode on the show, it is Dennis who replaced Scott as the lead singer of Ten Foot Pole, also a member of Scared Straight. And this is an amazingly fun conversation. I don't know if fun is the best word to describe it. More like a, an introspective conversation that is, well, it's fun, obviously, as well. But a totally different take on the experience of scared straight and just a, it's a really interesting conversation. I'm excited for you to hear it. And that is coming up on the next episode of the show. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember as always black lives matter. The lives of indigenous people matter, protect trans lives, go out there, get informed right now, show up at demonstrations, get your voice heard, uh, contribute if you can financially, Fuck fascism. Uh, it's a, a real pivotal moment in history where this stuff has risen up again. And we, we got to join together to make sure that we put it back down. Um, you know, it's important to, to stand together right now and, uh, and get involved. Get involved. Uh, also, get, speaking of get involved, make your own culture. Start a zine. Start a podcast. Start a band. Start, start something, you know, it, it's, it'll help you to kind of just be creative, get yourself out there and, and just, you know, just contribute to, to the noise of the world, I guess it helps though. It does help also sign your organ donor cards because by the time they come looking for those organs, you're not going to need them anymore. It'll just be like 
more baggage for you to kind of get, you know, shuffled around with. So just give those organs to someone else that needs them, you know? And, uh, and that's it. Uh, remember to check out those playlists if you, if you get a chance and I will see you on the next episode of the show. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.